0: Jesse, how's it going? Good. Katie, let's talk safety.
1: All right. Uh, let me put my safety vest on.
0: I'm wearing uh, just padded everything. I just, you can't you can't see an inch of my body. I'm imagining you covered in sticky menstrual pads right now. Yeah. How'd you know? Oh, I sent you that photo. <laughs> 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 so yeah, safety is uh, one of the big, one of the three S's of podcasting along with. What are the, what are the other two? Uh, shit talking. Uh-huh. And, uh, I forget the third, (laughs) I'm really not pulling (laughs) off this bit. Anyway, it's the biggest of the three S's of podcasting. And we had a a big safety and podcasting moment this week. Uh, this week there was apparently a convention called podcast moment, a big podcasting convention. I guess our invites got lost in the mail, I assume. Oh no, actually I got them for both of us, but I forgot to tell you about it. I was, I was busy, so. It's probably for the best. Here's what uh podcast movement at hashtag PM twenty two. This is sort of the official Twitter account of the organization tweeted yesterday. Hi folks. I'm trying to get the right voice for <laughs> In this that kind voice, of, yeah. <laughs> for this. Hey folks. We owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the PM twenty-two expo area near the Daily Wire booth. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. Those of you who called this unacceptable are right. In nine wonderful years growing and celebrating this medium, PM has made mistakes. The pain caused by this one will always stick with us. We promise that sponsors will be more carefully considered moving forward. Just to clarify, no Daily Wire representatives were scheduled to appear on panels, and Shapiro remained in the common space and did not have a badge. If you have questions, we're here to talk. Thank you for reading, and we hope you'll continue to join us from here on out.
1: What did Ben Shapiro do while he was there? Did he like give somebody a wet willy
0: or a wedgie or something? Well, first of all, he would be victimized if any wet willing or wedging went on oh, given yeah.
1: he's yeah, his height.
0: Yeah. Uh it's not the what he did, it's what he is. It's not the doing, Katie. It's the being. Yeah, that,
1: that makes absolute sense. I can see why people would be harmed by his presence. And I assume they provided trauma counselors and therapy dogs.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like at the very least they're available to talk for the people who are traumatized by having potentially been in the same giant conference hall as Ben Shapiro. But uh look, I'm glad they apologized. This was a major safety fail on their part. I can't even think about what would have happened. Can you imagine? Coming across someone whose political views you disagree with, what that would feel like?
1: Well, it it is known, well known that Ben Shapiro, I saw this in the comments when this was all unfolding yesterday, he's a, a literal Nazi, Jesse, which is, it's a rare position for a Jew to be a literal Nazi, but Ben Shapiro actually is one.
0: There were Jewish Nazis, and most of his podcast is just talking about rounding up the Jews. If you actually listen to it, which I have, that's what it is. So,
1: Yeah, he complains about rap songs and also the
0: Jews. And then he does raps about rounding up the juice. It's it's mm-hmm. really hard to listen to. Very cringe. Anyway, that happened there, that got me thinking about podcast safety at live events because we finally have our first live event scheduled. Our first public live event, I should say.
1: Yes, first public. We have done a very exclusive private event. Exclusive. Yes,
0: exclusive. This is our first non-conference one. Anyone can buy tickets. Arlington Cinema and Draft House. Or draft house in cinema. I can't remember. It's going to be like J.K. Rowling. I'm just not going to memorize it. Arlington draft house in cinema in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from D.C. October 29th, 7 p.m. Doors at 6 p.m. Uh, Tickets are $20. We hope to see as many of you as possible there. We're going to come up with a safety protocol, uh, you know, because being exposed to us is bad. We're probably going to have you all change into, like, hospital gear when you enter the door. And then on the way out, we will delouse you and do, like, a UV light thing to get all the cooties off. But I'm glad this incident with Ben Shapiro happened because, you know, it got us thinking about your safety and and the risks inherent to being in a room with someone you might disagree with.
1: I will be wearing my safety vest, and you, uh, as always, will be covered in menstrual pads. And wearing a helmet. Yes, wearing a helmet, as always. And uh, if you're interested in joining us for this live event, and we very much hope that you are, there will be a link to tickets in the show notes. One thing to note about this, it's a bar, so you have to be 21 to uh, enter, or you can be accompanied by your parent. So if you're not 21, make sure to get a ticket for your mom.
0: Katie, what is the name of this increasingly safety-focused podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, we're going to talk about a couple other examples of people being harmed by ideas and by internet content.
1: Yes, we are going to be discussing a controversy in the world of paleo art. Are you familiar with that concept, Jesse?
0: Paleo art? Only a little bit. It sounds dumb, but I'm also excited to hear about this.
1: It sounds like some sort of diet, but what we are talking about is uh,
0: not that. No, that's paleo fart. That's the high (laughs) high gas paleo diet. Uh Come to the live show if you want dad jokes from people who aren't dads. Uh, Okay, paleo art controversy. Looking forward to that. But first, Katie, what do you know about history.
1: As little as possible.
0: I try to stay away from it. There was a big blow up uh, this week that involved an article in Perspectives on History, the news magazine of the American Historical Association, not usually a source that generates controversy. This article was called Is History History? Identity Politics and Teleologies of the Present by James H. Sweet. Here's Sweet's bio on his University of Wisconsin page. My research and teaching interests center on Africans and their descendants in the broader world. I teach courses on comparative slavery, race and nation in the Atlantic world, comparative world history, the history of Brazil, and the history of South Africa. This guy is pretty qualified to write about slavery. Uh, I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs of his article because I I think it will give you a sense of, of what it's about.
1: Wait, before you do that, can you define teleologies for me?
0: Yeah, I'm just going to read the textbook definition because I I won't get it. My my sense of it is it basically has to do with something sort of like inherent internal purpose that it's working toward. Uh, If you dictionary it on Google, quote, the explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than the cause by which they arise. So it just it's sort of, I've heard it used in the sense of like, this thing exists to accomplish this goal or to push history in this direction or something like that.
1: Okay, I thought it was the study of uh, Teletubbies.
0: Yeah, that's the second definition. Okay. Yeah. All right, here's the start of this article. 20 years ago, in these pages, pages of this magazine, Lynn Hunt argued against presentism. She lamented historians' declining interest in topics prior to the 20th century, as well as our increasing tendency to interpret the past through the lens of the present. Hunt warned that this rising presentism threatened to, quote, put us out of business as historians, end quote. If history was little more than short-term identity politics, defined by present concerns, wouldn't students be better served by taking degrees in sociology, political science, or ethnic studies instead? The discipline did not heed Hunt's warning. From 2003 to 2013, the number of PhDs awarded to students working on topics post-1800 across all fields rose 18%. Meanwhile, those working on pre-1800 topics declined by 4%. During this time, the Wall Street meltdown was followed by plummeting undergraduate enrollments in history courses and increased professional interest in the history of contemporary socioeconomic topics. So Sweet goes on to talk about Obama and Twitter and Trump and just how basically history is getting more and more politicized. Uh, I'll do one more quote from the end of the beginning, end of the beginning of the article, the allure of political relevance facilitated by social and other media encourages a predictable sameness of the present in the past. This sameness is ahistorical. historical, a proposition that might be acceptable if it produced positive political results, but it doesn't hmm. that last point. I was sort of with him to the last mm-hmm. point where you're saying like, it's worth it. This sort of, yeah, this sort of historicization might be – historicizing, which he's calling superficial, might be worth it if it generated the right political outcomes. It's like, well, no, maybe historians should just try to do good and insightful history.
1: Right. That's the point. We've talked about this before, but it turns out that the Matthew Shepard case is much more complicated than just a hate crime and, in fact, might not have been a hate crime at all. You can check out the book. Uh, I'd say
0: probably yeah. wasn't It was a hate actually crime. Yeah.
1: motivated by drugs and money. And this was reported by a guy named Stephen Jimenez in a book called The Book of Matt. Uh, and when I learned about this, well after the book was published a couple of years ago, I was truly, truly shocked to find out that this, you know, the world's most famous anti-gay hate crime was actually not an anti-gay hate crime. And I had a conversation about this. I was at The Stranger at the time with some of my colleagues. And I remember distinctly one who who I truly like and respect Said, well, maybe it doesn't actually matter if it wasn't a hate crime because of all of the good that came of this. I
0: fundamentally, Wait, you, were, you were colleagues with Michael Hobbs.
1: <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I don't. I, di- I just fundamentally disagree with this. I don't think that that furthering falsehoods is is, is worth it for the greater good. I think truth is truth is valuable. Yeah.
0: And it's and it's not always as simple as like falsehoods versus truth hoods it's it's um but yeah that's a good example of like that's the kind of thing where it's like this event happened in the past we're going to interpret it in a very specific way and and cherry pick our evidence to to further our political goals um so naturally given the subject sweet criticizes the 1619 project but he does so in a pretty mild manner he asks if quote Efforts to claim a usable African-American past reify elements of American hegemony and exceptionalism that such narratives aim to dismantle. He's basically saying like if the goal is to say America isn't this like super special, shining, city on a hill, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You don't necessarily want to go in the other direction and say America is uniquely evil and uniquely involved in slavery. That's not good history either.
1: No, it's totally ahistorical. Slavery has existed and still exists to this day in parts of the world.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and Sweet basically argues people are using history as a sort of political cudgel and stripping out a lot of detail and context along the way. He talks about going to Almina uh, or Elmina, I guess it's Almina, a seaside village. Uh, in Ghana, that was one of the largest slave-trading depots in West Africa. He went there for a wedding. He and his family go on a tour of Elmina Castle in Ghana, and he describes how, quote, American influence was everywhere, from memorial plaques to wreaths and flowers left on the floors of the castle's dungeons. Arguably, Elmina Castle is now as much an African-American shine as a Ghanaian archaeological or historical site. But he points out that less than 1% of the Africans passing through Elmina arrived in North America. Like, this was this was a... Slave depot where horrific stuff happened, but it fundamentally wasn't really about America. It was it was much more about all the other ports that were receiving slaves. So he he basically said that like this sanitized version of history divides people into sort of clumsier groups than makes sense. Um, he said, "Quote the Elmina tour guide claimed that quote Ghanaians sent their quote servants into shadow slavery unknowingly." Uh. The guide made no reference. <laughs> <laughs> the guide made no reference to warfare or indigenous slavery, histories that interrupt assumptions of ancestral connection between modern day Ghanaians and visitors from the diaspora. So, again, he's sort of adopting my catchphrase here. It's more complicated than that. This idea that because you're Ghanaian, you're part of this uninterrupted link that goes back to your home country and are sort of, you know, in the same political or, or socio historical group thing ignores the fact that. Ghanaians were enslaving one another and selling those slaves to ports all around the world.
1: Yeah, I think there tends to be, at least for my education in American public schools, the study of slavery tends to start, and obviously it's been a while since I was in school, but it tends to start like on the slave ships and ignore how people ended up on those slave ships.
0: It was a big, horrible global system. And I think you can understand – why the version of it we were taught in school arose, and that's because there was a huge and in certain senses still ongoing attempt to deny the reality of American slavery and the causes of the Civil War. I mean, there's this whole lost cause effort to sort of paint the South as as unfairly victimized, and I would imagine that led to a backlash where people – overplayed certain elements of just the nature of slavery on a global scale and oversimplified America's role in the global slave trade. And that's that's what he's arguing against. Now, he also... So that's an example of him criticizing sort of certain forms of left-wing historicizing. He does call out the 1619 Project by name, uh, but he also criticizes conservative Supreme Court justices for misusing history in their own ways, both in Dobbs, uh, which overturned Roe v. Wade, and in a key concealed carry case. He writes that, quote, the court's majority deploys only those pieces of historical evidence that support their preconceived political biases, which is the, the same claim a lot of people have leveled at Nicole Hannah-Jones for her treatment of, of the revolutionary period. Okay, gotcha. So, um, he basically, he concludes his article by pointing out that quote doing history with integrity requires us to interpret elements of the past not through the optics of the present but within the worlds of our historical actors historical questions often emanate out of present concerns but the past interrupts challenges and contradicts the present in unpredictable ways history is not a heuristic tool for the articulation of an ideal imagined future rather it is a way to study the messy uneven process of change over time when we foreshorten or shape history to justify rather than inform contemporary political positions We not only undermine the discipline, but threaten its very integrity. This column, like, I I thought it was, like, a little bit not well-structured. I I didn't love the way it was written, but, like, I thought it was fine. I thought it was perfectly reasonable. And if there's one thing doing this podcast has taught me is that if I think something is perfectly reasonable, it will lead to a massive shitstorm online. (laughs) After the article went up, uh, the American Historical Association tweeted it. And on Twitter, a subset of what are called Twitter historians absolutely lost their shit. Uh, we'll include a link to the quote retweet so you can dig through this garbage patch yourself. But a small sample: one is this guy, Doctor Matthew or Matthew Chapman. He's he's sort of paraphrasing Sweet's argument, snarkily in quotes. Why do all these black and brown people keep writing things that disagree with my white supremacist view of history? So he's calling a guy a white scholar who's dedicated his career to studying the slave trade white supremacist. That's nice. There's also a lot of this really shrill and annoying whataboutism. So Terry Bouton, another historian, just to be clear, the leading U.S. history org responds to book bannings, teacher firings, curriculum censoring, and Supreme Court rulings that badly misuse history. That's funny because he literally mentions that in his article by telling scholars to retreat to obscure subject matter with no contemporary relevance to avoid the appearance of presentism. Again, these are people who just did not read the column or didn't read it closely. Um, she protected her tweets, but Catherine denial history department chair at Knox college in Illinois, apparently started a letter writing campaign. Her tweets were captured by Google. They read in part, if like me, you're appalled by James sweet's essay, in the magazine please write the council and let them know your honest thoughts. She apparently tweeted out the email addresses of members of the council which like whatever. But obviously if a right-wing person tweeted out the email addresses of the people sitting on an academic literal organization violence. it would be treated as literal. I had literal murder in my notes but yes, maybe literal <laughs> violence. It's um it would be doxing. Doxing, harassment, rape, murder. Assi- we could use some clarity. <laughs> Genocide, slavery. Genocide, female genital mutilation, uh, tax evasion. We could maybe use some clarity at this point about when you are and aren't allowed to take someone's publicly listed email address and tweet it for some political purpose. Um, a particularly bad response that like highlighted the fact that these guys just aren't responding to what was actually written. This was a guy who's known on Twitter as the tattooed prof. That is apparently his brand, being Mm -hmm. a professor who is tattooed. Don't you think like if we – I feel like if we did a thousand parallel universe simulators that all had a guy named the Tattooed Prof. He's the same everyone. Yeah. Would there be any of those where like the Tattooed Prof turns out to be a cool, chill guy?
1: (laughs) Probably not.
0: He wrote this ridiculous piece on his blog that really just came down to like, I'm not saying this guy's racist, but uh, what if he's racist? So, there's this giant outcry. The article was published and tweeted out August 17th by August 19th. This had appeared at the top of the article. Author's note, August 19th, 2022. My September perspectives on history column has generated anger and dismay among many of our colleagues and members. I take full responsibility that it did not convey what I intended and for the harm it has caused. I had hoped to open a conversation on how we do history in our current politically charged environment. Instead, I foreclosed this conversation for many members, causing harm to colleagues, the discipline, and the association. I can't read the rest of it because I'll puke on my mic, but um, it has lines like... This is a Mad Libs apology where you just
1: insert like specifics to the genre, but you could just replicate this as a template.
0: I sincerely regret the way I have alienated some of my black colleagues and friends, uh, the last bit. Once again, I apologize for the damage I have caused to my fellow historians, the discipline, and the AHA. I hope to redeem myself in future conversations with you all. I'm listening and learning, and I'm going to kill myself (laughs) right now. Okay, the last bit I made up, they did have I'm listening and learning. Um, You're right. It's a Mad Libs apology. What worries me a little bit is that we now know this This shit is happening like every every liberal institution has had a meltdown like this recently. It's just – it's getting pathetic. It's not hard to imagine a world where his response is something like, you know, I've read some of your responses. I don't agree with all of them. I don't disagree with all of them. In the next issue of the magazine, we're going to print a few responses if you'd like to submit one. Here's the email address. Yeah. Like that's not – It's. I feel like we were in that world not that long ago, right?
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm not a. I'm not a historian. Uh, are you present? Or what's the term present present
0: presentism? Present am I are present presentizing? presentizing? Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, <laughs> the problem with an apology like this is that the guy actually did nothing wrong um
0: and you should well and so that's what's weird about this genre of apologies you say i'm sorry for the harm i committed but then you don't explain what it is because you know you didn't do any harm
1: right right i think there's an away there's a way okay so like after i wrote my detransition piece in 2017 and there was this huge backlash i wrote a response to it and i never apologized because i didn't do something wrong what i said was like something like i am sorry if people felt harmed by this but I didn't actually say that I was sorry for causing harm because I didn't cause harm. Yeah,
0: but that's not even people. Okay, whenever people do that, I'm sorry if people are offended, they point out it's a non apology. Exactly. Which is what I'm saying. But, <laughs> well, it's not just a non apology, it's also not true because you're not actually sorry if people felt harmed by it. I mean, I think you can. Are you actually sorry if people misread your? Article and got mad. I'm,
1: yes, I'm sorry that they got mad at me. Of course, I'm sorry they got mad at me. <laughs>
0: not like when you say "I'm sorry," it implies contrition. No, I'm You're not, not contri- saying I'm
1: sorry that you fucking dumbasses don't know how to read. Right.
0: Okay. So, but okay. So the translation is. It is upsetting to me that you're so dumb.
1: Yes, I think he. That's not an
0: apology. Ab- <laughs> I'm sorry you're such a moron. Yes,
1: I think that he should have done that. I'm sorry that you didn't actually read this piece or that you were unable of comprehending what I'm saying. That's what he should have done. I do not think right. that he should have he should have done this abject abject apology. The other thing is that this stuff doesn't like when you apologize for something that you didn't do or something that you did that wasn't actually wrong. Nobody. Forgives you because that's not the point. The point of these sort of public campaigns are, besides to just like cow people into, into apology, into non genuine apologies, are to display to everybody else that a the critic is like on the right side of history and has good upstanding moral values blah 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 but also to say to everybody else don't cross this particular boundary so i don't i don't yeah. think the demands for apology are even about necessarily the person who's in trouble there's all these other sort of elements here but i don't think it's ever really or usually about the person who who like did quote who quote unquote did harm if they didn't do any actual harm
0: yeah yeah um it was It's just, it's such a weird ritual, and everyone sees it as a ritual, and everyone makes fun of it. There were responses from, um, it's just one of the interesting subplots that I love of the whole 1619 controversy is that the World Socialist website, literally a Trotskyite organization, has now published a lot of really good responses to this stuff. And they, they, you know, ran an article about this where they pointed out all the people screeching at him and how ridiculous it was. Phil Magnus also did a piece on this that ran in Real Clear Politics. He's a, um, what is he? I guess conservative leaning conservative historian who has sort of batted butted heads with like the Kevin Cruz Twitter story and types and been very critical.
1: Yeah, we talked about him on his show a couple weeks yes. ago. Speaking of which, is Kevin has Kevin Cruz emerged? Is he back?
0: No, Kevin Cruz was accused by Magnus of plagiarism. Do I need to put a question mark on it? And plagiarism? he just disappeared from he Twitter. apparently disappeared. Um but yeah, Magnus popped up to write about this blow up. Um so uh,
1: Wait, the before we talk about that, there's one other thing I want to point out. Yeah. If you apologize like this essay getting this sort of backlash would have won this guy sweet critics of the critics, right? People would come to his defense and say like this there's nothing wrong with this essay, the people criticizing this are being stupid. No, but it's the wrong people. Right, but but once you apologize, you lose those people. So not only do yeah. you not Actually, does the apology not actually help you when it comes to uh, redeeming yourself in the eyes of your critics? You also lose the people who would defend you. So that's another reason not to apologize, because then just like twice as many people are mad at you.
0: Should I call him at his desk at the University of Wisconsin? And be like, "Hey, uh, regret to inform you, you've lost blocked and reported."
1: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he would be devastated by that.
0: No, but but what you're saying is, that, but but it's exactly the point. Is if you hold your ground. You will get people defending you, but they will mostly not be members of your in-group. They will be yeah. like heterodox liberals or Phil Magnus. They won't be people. Yeah, it's all it's all tribal. So. But then
1: when you uh, when you inevitably apologize, they will turn and attack you
0: as well. Look, we're all just <laughs> Ghanaian tribes people warring with one another, not <laughs> it's so not true. part of a unified block it's of any so sort, true. even if we have superficial similarities. <laughs> um, so yeah, there were the then there were the, the backlash of the backlash. Magnus World Socialist Website. Um, I guess the only point I wanted to – oh, the Magnus response was headlined, the suicide of the American Historical Association. Everything just has to be turned up to 11. Um, the point I want to end on is I think a lot of the time people mistake these blubs for being like fundamentally about ideology. But often there's something like less principles going on. It does come down to money or status or jockeying. Let me read part of an email I got from a historian about the recent trajectory of the American historical association. Um, in recent years, two things have come up in terms of the org's focus. One is the move away from job interviews at the annual conference. This was seen as elitist or whatever, and more colleges moved to doing zoom anyway. Um, that's a good thing in some ways. Oh, do, do you know about those like um, interviews at jo- at conferences? No. If you're on the academic job market in certain fields, uh one of the weird traditions is you will go to a annual conference in your field. I guess there's multiple fields that do this and then you'll get interviewed by like, you know, 5, 10, 15 universities whatever it is. This is very it is very elitist because it like requires you to fly to this conference. I don't know if it's sometimes covered by the people interviewing you. That's actually a good question I should have looked up, but either way it is like a pretty big drag on time and money to have to travel somewhere, dress nice, sit in a room um so, one of the ways a the American Historical Association stayed in business this correspondent said was they got they got conference dues from people who would have to come to this conference to get uh interviewed for jobs so ah. she says it's a good thing in some ways they no longer do this in person. Going back to the quote, but it means that the AHA no longer has such a captive audience of job seekers and search committees who are going to pay registrations and be at the conference. And of course, search committees hire suites for interviews, et cetera, et cetera. COVID has also put into high relief the issue of these big conferences and their viability at all and these were the major financial element of these orgs. Likewise, open access of the journals. Great, sure, but the fact that subscription was bundled with membership dues was what kept these orgs in funds. The second big thing was, of course, the Trump election. Everyone running around with their hair on fire, and academic orgs that had previously tried to be apolitical, went all in with statements on everything under the sun, all endorsing one particular worldview. Whereas conferences used to have lots of panels on Thomas Jefferson's teaspoons and Japanese politics of the 1800s, now everything's about now. The keynotes are not about the Spanish golden age, but the age of Trump. And for a group that is meant to be the for historians of everyone, it's tediously U.S. focused. So if this historian's right, James Sweet's column is he's sort of pushing back against his own organization's recent trajectory. And that organization's recent trajectory isn't really about like doing the right thing. It's just the organization wants to stay relevant and to continue to pull in funding at a time when certain aspects of his business model are under threat.
1: The American Historical Association to pivot should pivot to uh,
0: abortion activism. Just history of abortion stuff and abortion activism. Yeah, but yeah, but history starts in twenty twenty one. This this sort of reminds me of what your argument that some of the gay rights organizations after those. Key fights were more or less won, although now who the fuck knows. Uh, you know, turned to trans rights, and in some cases made sort of silly maximalist arguments. But they're really just trying to stay relevant and keep pulling in funds.
1: Yeah, they're just trying to stay in business. People are just trying to keep their jobs, which is just the nature of institutions—is to just keep yourself running. <laughs> there almost seems something like organic about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so. That's why I do think, like, we shouldn't always talk about this in terms of ide- ideology. Like, I think capitalism is often a much better framework.
1: Yeah, this also – so this gets to something that bothered me about, for instance, the Me Too movement or the racial version of the Me Too movement, the the, the reckoning a couple from a couple years ago, which is judging – and this is much more contemporary, but judging past actions by the history of today or moral
0: standards of today. Yeah. I also continue to think that, like, a lot of the – Historians, um, I don't want to relitigate the Nicole Hannah Jones essay forever, but I do think like if if a right co- right wing coded person had made those sorts of arguments or or errors, if you call them errors, it, it they were just I think the the stuff was clearly wrong, and I think it's done damage to the establishment that people reflexively feel like they have to defend it because the right is attacking it. Uh, so it's. Crazy that we're still talking about. Oh, the, the last thing I want to mention is James Sweet was actually – this is something that the World Socialist website guy pointed out. James Sweet is working on a response, a critical response to the 1619 Project. So I think you're exactly right. That's that, going to go over well. Well, no, but I think the the point of these freakouts is to lay down a marker and be like, you cannot cross this line. So we, I think it would not surprise me at all if he subsequently neutered his response and made it and really pulled punches now because he's seen what happens if you don't do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's clearly capable of being cowed into submission, uh, according to his apology.
0: He's a soy boy. He's. A I'm soy a soy boy. boy. I can. I can you say that. Right? That's one of the three S's of podcasting. Soy boy. <laughs> soy boy. Yeah. Uh, anything else on this, Katie? No. Should we do housekeeping? I hear a knock on the door. Housekeeping's here. Let's do it.
1: The house cleaner is here and the house cleaner, uh, give a big thank you to your house cleaner, Jesse, for, uh, helping pay off uh, my student loan. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Uh, we are blocked. Should ar- we talk about that? Wait, what are your student loans? Student loans. Yes. Do you know that there's some big news in student loans? $10,000? Yeah. When I saw that, I was like, we should not talk about that. There's no way we are economically literate enough to do, produce something of value on that subject. You're
1: probably right about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that being said, let's just, let's just third next 30 minutes. Let's just free ball it. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's good and bad uh housekeeping staying on track come on we're blocked and reported we're a podcast you can find us at blocked and if you go there you can sign up to become a primo our premium members get uh three extra episodes a month uh we did a really good one i thought on rapid onset gender dysphoria uh what week was that I've been traveling. My sense of time is just that was earlier this week, right? Yes. Anyway, check that out. You can also check out our Reddit, our subreddit, uh, blockchainportal.reddit.com. Um, anything else, Katie?
1: Um, I see another speech. Another apology has come through the transom. Uh, the Finnish prime minister, or maybe yeah, prime minister, is. apologizing. Did
0: you say "tramp"? It sounded like you said "tramp son,", tramp like son. the son of a tramp. The, the
1: transom. Uh, the Finnish, the Finnish prime minister is apologizing for too much
0: partying. For being too awesome. Being too cool. <laughs> being too I am very cool. sorry. I was just trying to do a uh, Finnish accent, and it. I said. She so, uh, says she will learn and will do better. <laughs> Promise to learn and do better. Um, okay, that's that's an important update. That was that was a very funny controversy. So mild by U.S. standards. Yeah.
1: The, uh, for anybody who hasn't been following that, the Finnish prime minister is like a cool, hot young woman who likes to party. And apparently that's that's a
0: problem. No, but I think what, no, I mean, it, it, people defended her, but somehow what pushed it over the top was two topless chicks. We can still say chicks, right? Broads. Sorry, uh, broads. broads. Two yeah. topless broads. Uh, making out like on her property, that was what pushed it over, I guess, into Apologyville. But uh, But
1: what? Everybody loves lesbians. What's the problem?
0: (sighs) It's a little overrated. (laughs) I forgot to mention that when I tweeted about the podcast conference Apology, someone responded, my cousin was there. He's currently in the ICU with a bad strain of B-shap 22. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Closely related to monkeypox.
0: Um. I'm having trouble maintaining focus during housekeeping. What are we what are we forgetting? Come see us. Come see us live. Yep. Uh Blockreported.org. BlockReport.org. Join us. Blockreport.org. Katie, what the fuck is paleo art?
1: Jesse, that is the question everybody has been waiting for the answer to. It's so it's basically paintings or illustrations that try to accurately depict extinct species as they were at the time that they were alive. So it's the what's the the guy you just talked about? What's his first name?
0: Ben? Ben Shapiro? No, Sweet. James Sweet.
1: James Sweet. It's the James Sweet version of 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 art, right? So like accurate depictions, not presentizing a photo of a fucking dinosaur. Got it? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read you a description from a paleo artist named Emily Willoughby. And remember that name because it'll come back up again. Science writers and natural illustrators have a unique responsibility to the public and that they must convey the reality, the reality of their subjects to laymen in a palatable format. Paleo artists have the responsibility to make whatever we're illustrating as accurate as possible because these renditions are often what shape the public's perception of what these animals were actually like. We have to act as the filter that compiles and transforms published paleontological knowledge into a visual representation of that knowledge. So the goal is to be accurate. So you're not going to see like Jesus riding a brontosaurus or anything like that in paleo art. As for what it actually looks like, it's basically what you think of when you think of a a drawing of a T-Rex or a saber-toothed tiger or a woolly mammoth. Uh, I'm going to send you some examples, Jesse, and I'd like you to describe them. This one is by a paleo artist named Charles Robert Knight. He he died in the 20th century. He's sort of late 19th century, early early 20th century paleo artist. He's one of the most famous creators in the genre, although I suppose they probably didn't use the term creator at the time.
0: Oh, this is really cool. It's like one... Dinosaur looking thing leaping onto another and the other has it is on its back, like belly out like it's about to be killed. Or like about to be tickled. That's
1: what most looks like when he
0: wants his belly scratched. It could be a tickle fight. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. These ones, I don't know if they're T Rex, but they kinda look like T Rex. They've got the short arms and the big the big tails and stuff like that. No, those
0: are aren't those too small to be T Rex?
1: They might be too small, but just imagine it, imagine
0: it larger. Then it's a T Rex Oh, okay. Thanks, Katie. <laughs> imagine it larger. <laughs>
1: Just blow it up and it's T-Rex. All right, I'm going to send you another one.
0: This is Tyrannosaurus confronting a family of Triceratops. It looks like they're just going to like talk it out. Uh, he's saying he's saying to the Triceratops, why do we have to be violent? Why won't you debate me? The Triceratops are ignoring him. It's done in this like, <laughs> you know, fairly washed out naturalistic looking style. It's Clearly they're attempting to, you know, uh, make it. This looked like things would have looked back then if you were there.
1: Yeah. The Triceratops is at a podcast conference looking at Ben Shapiro uh, and judging him silently.
0: He's coming. I was like, why won't you debate me? And they're like, dude, I'm scared. Yeah.
1: Okay. So this field. Has its fair share of drama, although I'm fighting through doing this podcast that every field seems to have its fair share of drama. Wait,
0: paleo art has drama? How? Yeah. The fucking dinosaurs.
1: Okay. So the reason is because, or the reason I suspect this is because scientists are constantly learning new things about dinosaurs and other extinct species. And as they do, there's a lot of debate over what's accurate and what's not. For instance, there's a paleo artist named David Peters who has spent years arguing that actual paleontologists, the people who study dinosaurs, are completely wrong about a species called pterosaurs. Have you heard of pterosaurs?
0: I don't think so, no. So
1: Peters models himself as as a heretic, but most scientists think that he's actually a crackpot, and he went from being sort of respected in this field to being not respected in this field. In 2015, Vice published an article about how frustrated paleontologists were because of, if you Google image Pterosaurs, you're likely to get him, or you were at the time likely to get his imagined drawings of what they're like versus the, their like accepted models of what this dinosaur actually looked like. Okay. So back to Emily Willoughby. That's the woman I, mo- I mentioned a, m- a moment ago. She's a well-known paleo artist and her work is displayed in a number of museums, books, scientific publications. She's the author or co-author of the books God's World or Human Reason and Drawing and Painting Dinosaurs. She's also an up-and-coming behavioral geneticist with a PhD from the University of Minnesota. And she focuses on the heritability of cognitive ability. Rowrow. And as you might expect, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, I'm using square quotes here, problematic. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, you need to know about one of Emily's hobbies. Jesse, Emily is a furry.
0: Oh, man, <laughs> this story has everything.
1: <laughs> this is a very intersectional story. It's got academia, it's got furries, it's really a blocked, a uh, grab bag. Okay, so it's actually probably overstating it to say that she's a furry. Maybe former furry is more accurate. I don't know that she has her own fursona or her own fursuit. I don't know if she goes to conventions dressed in like a dinosaur mascot, con- you know, costume and have sex with people. I don't know about that. Also, if these terms mean nothing to you, Good. bless you. Just don't, that way. yeah. But at, yeah, at one point she was active on a furry website called Fur Affinity. She was very active from 20, 2006 to 2015. Uh, she posted under the username, I'm going to mispronounce this, it's I-X-E-R-I-N,
0: is there, is, Does that sound is like... Therein? Is therein?
1: Her account is now disabled, but uh, we have examples of the kind of stuff that she posted. Jesse, I would like you
0: to describe this for me. This is going to be bad, whatever it is. I have so many things to be worried about as I click this, given everything you've told me so far.
1: I know. I love asking you to describe first. Okay.
0: Describe this one. I mean, there's nothing wrong. This is just a cartoonish... It's like half dinosaur, half something. It has like leopard spots... I thought you were going to send me something sick. I'm disappointed. <laughs> this it's a it's
1: a it's called Kanyeosaurus. Basically that it's a combination of a Herosaurus. I don't know if that's a real dinosaur or fake dinosaur and a hyena. So it's a it's a hybrid of a dinosaur and a hyena.
0: Kayana, where does Cyanasaurus come from with those two?
1: Oh, I thought it said Kanye. No. Yeah, you're right. k 8 This is furry speak. We don't actually understand it. But the point is, this one's much more, like, cartoonish than uh, than paleo art. Yeah. And it's obviously not, a, like, a species that exists. Okay, let's do another one.
0: You, you, can't, you can't do all that wind-up involving furries and then send me something one of them drew and no one in it is having sex with anyone or anything else. Like, come on. All
1: right, well, let me do another one here. Let's see. If there, is anybody having sex in this one?
0: No, this is a passed-out dinosaur... Crazy dainy D I N Y always a bad decision. It's a drunk dinosaur. It's a drunk dinosaur. Yeah,
1: it's a dr- it's a dinosaur that has that is surrounded by beer bottles and has passed out.
0: Yeah, I mean it's cute. It's like you know it's you cute. say it's cute and then you click click around some more for other stuff. <laughs> it's cute. It's less sexual than our favorite furries. It's less sexual than we would like it to be. Frankly.
1: Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, they're basically, like, kind of cute, semi-funny dino drawings. But over the last several years, and this is what Emily did as a hobby, but over the last several years, she's distanced herself from the furry thing, possibly because she, like, got a little bit older, possibly because the whole point of paleo art, this other thing that she does, is to accurately descript these species. And this is way more cartoonish. The furry thing is way more cartoonish and interpretive than it is scientific, right? Yeah. Okay, so the current controversy begins on August 11th, when a, t- a Twitter user named Prehistorica under dash CM posted this. By now, a lot of you are aware, but for anyone in the dark, paleo artist Emily Willoughby is involved in, this is quote, quote unquote, research that is directly tied to eugenics, racism, and classism. She also believes, or is at least indifferent to, the myth that intelligence has a racial component. Let me say this carefully. IQ is a pseudoscientific myth, and the quote-unquote research she is involved in directly contributes to inequality and actively harms disadvantaged people. She also believes such thing, that such things as aggression, political predisposition, and quote-unquote misconduct are heritable. And of course, because this is Twitter, people in the field immediately see this, these tweets and immediately start to denounce her. Here are a few of the reactions. This one is by a, zoo- a zoologist named Darren, Ma- Darren Nash. Uh, he said, "Over recent days, paleo artist Emily Willoughby has been accused of being associated with race science and its attendant political positions. For that reason, I cannot, from here on, have any association with Emily or her work. I will not be engaging in, the dis- in discussions on this matter." Uh,
0: a paleo. Wait, art- he doesn't even—he doesn't even say like I looked into it and it's true. So she's been accused of it, so I'm going to distance myself.
1: Jesse. Have you ever heard of a false accusation? I don't think so.
0: These people suck so fucking hard, man. Like, look, if if someone is proven to be a Nazi or whatever, I don't mind denouncing or distancing themselves from him. Them, but just the the sheer cowardice of, oh, I heard this person's bad. I have nothing to do with them. I'm not going to talk about it. Like, you're you're being a bad person when you do that. Anyway, I shouldn't be surprised at this point.
1: So the paleo artist also jumped on. One named Dino DJ says... Let's make one thing clear. The situation with Emily Willoughby here is not just Twitter drama that slips away after a day or two. It's very serious with very heavy real real world implications.
0: Oh, Oh. Dino DJ says so. (laughs) He's a Dino DJ. Oh, God.
1: It doesn't just go away. Absolutely nothing about this is okay. It'd be funny like if T-Rex were a DJ with those tiny little arms.
0: I know. How would even it doesn't even make sense. Come on.
1: Dino DJ continues. The gymnastics and lengths I've seen some, especially very prominent figures in the paleosphere, go to try to defend or make, th- make things seem not that bad is disappointing and unsavory, to say the least. No, hon, it is that bad. There is no nuance that frames any of this as good. By this stage, there is an abundance of information pointing out the problematic nature of her work, actions, who she associates with, co-authors, sites, etc. There is no place for work that promotes eugenics and racism and needs to be actively denounced. This uh, comment comes from a national history illustrator named Mia Du Diallo. He says, this is the type of research that incarcerates black people as early as elementary school, setting them up for the school to prison pipeline. This is ultimately a major component of white supremacy at a basic level. He also took drawing took issue with drawings that she did in 2010 on Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. Jesse, do you
0: remember that? Everybody Draw Muhammad Day was what it sounds like. It was just this pushback against... Uh the idea that non-Muslims should be subjected to this belief of some radical Muslims, that it's like a horrible thing to draw Muhammad, and a lot of people drew Muhammad.
1: Yeah, so this this came about after South Park was centered by Comedy Central for depicting the prophet Muhammad, Muhammad peace be upon him. Uh, um, this is Haram in Islam, which is my religion, the one true religion. A, yeah,
0: my, I forgot. Yeah,
1: a quick aside on that. So Everybody Draw Muhammad Day was started by a Seattle artist named Molly Norris. She sent a Muhammad cartoon that she drew drew to Dan Savage. He posted it on the Stranger's blog, and then that sort of helped start this whole thing. Thousands of people pledged to participate. And then, so it grew into this huge cultural phenomenon, and then Molly got cold feet and tried to call it off, but it was too late by that point. Uh, It happened. Reason Magazine actually held a contest for the dress drawing of muhammad and molly was put on a hit list by an al-qaeda cleric and she changed her name and went into hiding and has been in hiding for the last 12
0: years jesus yeah that's fucking crazy man yeah
1: Yeah. and uh considering what happened to our friend uh as you would call him sam and jesse recently she might want to stay in hiding
0: Tuna Rushdie. Tuna Rushdie. Okay. So – If he ever has to go into <laughs> hiding, that will throw them off the scent if he changes his name to Tuna Rushdie.
1: Okay. So Mal- or so Emily Willoughby participated in Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. Jesse, please describe this drawing.
0: Uh, This is kind of cute. It's like it's Muhammad and it says Islam, the religion of peas instead of peace, and he's just eating peas.
1: Yeah, he also has peas in his nose.
0: Can I just point out that Jews, we do have something similar. If you go into a synagogue, we do not do any images of our, like, Moses, Noah. Uh, that's also against Judaism. And really? And we're chiller about it, but it's the same thing. Like, that's why if you go into a synagogue, you you won't see any such images. Because the idea is you're sort of, I think the idea is like, it's just God and man, and you can't sort of deify any humans. Uh, aren't you
1: also like not allowed to use the word God in your religion, Jesse?
0: Yeah, some people are. Um, that's where that's where the asterisk J star star S E S star.
1: <laughs> that's where you, you can't
0: say God's name because otherwise he'll harass you online. So you do G G dash D. He has a huge following, dude. He will quote retweet you. It's
1: like when you tweet about Michael Hobbs, he will find it <laughs> behind a block.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so that was Emily's drawing. Pretty standard. I mean, I don't think hers is particularly offensive compared to probably the one that uh, won the Reason Magazine contest. Not that I've actually seen it. But this is what happens, right? You get dogpiled for something. You become controversial for something. And then people dig through your archives to find other problematic things that you've done. And so as part of this process, people uncovered the following. Jesse, I'm going to send you another link. Describe that
0: wow this is uh two are they velociraptors what species are they
1: yeah they look like velociraptors to me
0: they're they're nazi regalia they're sitting at a table they're playing chess they're nazi nazi velociraptors
1: yeah they've got the armband uh they've got yeah they're just like it's two nazis playing a game of chess so emily posted this on that website fur affinity in 20 in 2009 and to be clear She did not actually create that particular furry art. She says that she commissioned it with her then boyfriend, who was Jewish, and he thought it would be funny. Again, this was in 2009, so Emily would have been like 19 at the time. And frankly, if commissioning Nazi dinosaur makes you a literal Nazi, well then call me Adolf because I happen to have a mural of T-Rex heiling Hitler in my living room. Still, I think the fact that she didn't actually make this art, she commissioned this art, got lost in translation because a lot of people, including me, initially thought that she created this. I mean, I also don't think it actually matters either way because the art is fine. And also it was a half a lifetime ago when she was a literal teenager. And it's in no way a reflection of her views on Jews or Nazis or even dinosaurs. But regardless, this was used as further evidence that there's something wrong with her. So now she's not just a eugenicist because she studies genetics and cognition. She's also a Nazi sympathizer because she commissioned this drawing of Nazi dinosaurs playing chess. And this starts this whole new round of condemnations. Emily did speak up to defend herself. Here's what she said in a tweet. So today there has been an outpouring of accusations levied against me, mostly concerning the research I do as a PhD researcher in behavior genetics. Most of what has been said today is either stated in ignorance or has been blatantly false. I do research on cognitive ability and genetics. Most modern research about these topics, including mine, does not concern race or eugenics. IQ has been used for bad things in the past, but it is not a discredited myth. It is an imperfect but useful measure. This is a completely non-controversial in modern psychology. Just so you know about this stuff,
0: is IQ a discredited myth? No, not at all. I mean, it's it's. I think it's one of the better tools we have um, for predicting how well people will do at certain tasks. It's not perfect, but in sort of the parlance of science, it accounts for a lot of the variance in in people's outcomes in different domains. Meaning. To boil it down, like if you have someone's IQ, that's just a pretty efficient way to be able to predict how well they'll do at various cognitive tasks and different sorts of jobs and how well they'll perform in school. Again, it's not perfect. It's not the only thing. But this campaign to pretend IQ is just complete pseudoscience is itself pseudoscience. It's just – it's false and people repeat it with a lot of confidence.
1: Right. And IQ, like every other physical trait or mental trait, is – there's a degree of heritability there, right?
0: Yeah. It's it's by the standards of these things considered to be highly heritable. And we shouldn't take that as like an infallible finding and maybe we'll learn more. But the signs we have suggests that, yeah, IQ is very heritable. And um, the assumption – It's just like in no way should be surprising. No. I mean like there's not <laughs> – yeah, I mean, at the level of averages, people who are very smart tend to have smart kids, and and this is coded as like something that inevitably points us toward right wing policies. But as, but as Freddie DeBoer and Paige Harden have pointed out, you could just as easily argue that like if you don't under you can't build a just society, like on the myth of the blank slate that everyone will have the cognitive talents needed to be a successful computer programmer or a lawyer, engineer. It's just not true, and I think it is incompatible with like good social policy. So. It's frustrating um, that IQ is seen as a myth. It's not a myth. It's heritable. That's that's what the science says at the moment.
1: Right. And so let's pause on that. So we've had both Freddie DeBoer and Paige Harden on this show. Can you just give a little primer on their position? We've also talked about this in the context of Razib Khan. But on their position, like these are both two progressive people who are interested in genetics, interested in IQ, interested in the social implications of the heritability of genetics. But these are not conservatives who are arguing for, I don't know, even what the social policies would be.
0: Yeah, I mean, char- so basically Charles Murray has argued, you know, you're you're wasting money trying to lift up people with low IQ. They're not destined to succeed. At, at one point, Murray made like a really radical argument for like cutting a huge amount of welfare. But like, even that, it just doesn't necessarily logically follow. Like, I always use the example of someone who is... Clearly, um, developmentally disabled, where the, to the point where they can't cure, care for themselves. Like any decent society will make sure that person can live a comfortable life, which requires money. No decent society would say, "Oh, they're developmentally disabled. Let's just kill them." That's what the Nazis did. So this idea that because you can measure their IQ and it's very low, that automatically leads to bad policies. Is silly. Everyone knows there's some people who need help, and different people need different amounts of help. That's like the that's the whole basis of communism, which in theory is the most left wing ideology there is. So, uh, the discourse on this is very stupid. Steven Pinker has written wrote a very good book about it called The Blank Slate.
1: Yeah, and I think that also this uh, the ignoring that there is a genetic component here. I mean, not only is it does it make you look kind of stupid because it's obvious, but also it doesn't. I don't think it has the intended effect of like helping. Anybody? I don't,
0: no, I don't think it helps anyone at all. Also, like if if you uh, abandon that, look, right wing conservatives who want to cut welfare will find some justification for that. If it, if it's not biological, they'll just say, "Oh, black people don't have a culture of success and ambition, so we shouldn't give them." Money. There'll always be something. This idea that. You know, these political arguments hinge on whether or not IQ is taken seriously, I just think is a a severe misreading of the situation.
1: Right. Okay. So Emily did have a few defenders. Eric Turkheimer was one. He's among uh, the more notable progressive behavioral geneticists. He said, I'm not familiar with everything she has ever written, but she is being attacked unfairly today. Ultimately saying that anyone who thinks about genetics and human behaviors on the side of the hereditarians and racists is a concession to the racists themselves, as I have said for a very long time. This was also covered by evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne. He blogs at whyevolutionistrue.com. And he wrote, Today we're going to look at one attempt at cancellation that particularly galled me. For the charges against the accused, genetic researcher and paleo artist Emily Willoughby are not only unfair, but bespeak the profound ignorance of her critics. This piling on is what happens when someone studies the genetics of IQ, but doesn't even mention race. It's enough that one studies the genetics of this trait to bring out a pack of howling morons denying that there is IQ, that it has a genetic component, and then you claim that the student is a horrible person who must be a eugenicist or a Nazi. So that was coined, but for the most part, people really were not defending her. And I think part of this is probably because of the inevitable backlash and behavioral genetics as a field, it tends to be explicitly partisan. That is explicitly progressive in a way that most scientific fields try not to be, because of the because of the. Uh,
0: I, I think that's less and less true. That yeah, fields try not to be politicized. But I yeah, get what you're saying.
1: yeah, um, yeah, that has certainly changed in recent years. But in the field of behavioral genetics, oftentimes work is only deemed worthwhile or trustworthy. If it's done with the express purpose of advancing progressive political goals. And so there's this pall of suspicion over any work of the field that is primarily empirical and tends not to, I don't know, have like a, a, an explicit progressive value judgment on it. And you can see this in the response to the call out of Emily Willoughby by a guy named Mark Witten. He's a respected paleontologist. He began with a plea to stop the personal attacks of her, but then Emily started to engage with him and he straight up asked her if her work is progressive as though that's sort of like a necessary caveat in this field. And apparently it is.
0: Oh my God. Is your work progressive? Maybe, Maybe she just wants to, do you know how little we know about genetics? We're like we're like, you know, just discovered gunpowder, and we need to be able to get to the moon. That we don't. It it is such a box of mysteries, and to be like, well, you can only study it if it's progressive. Like, progressive according to who? According to which interpretation? It's such a bullshit way to look at science.
1: According to what moment in time? Yeah, man. And I think that connects with your story from earlier regarding history, where unless it's explicitly pro- progressive, there's something suspect about this, as though. Knowledge can't stand on its own; it has to be progressive. or we should be, yeah,
0: yeah. It's um, man, I feel bad. Uh, so, so it says like no evidence came out that she was actually racist. As for the Nazi dinosaur, she doesn't.
1: She doesn't. Her work does not. She doesn't do any work
0: on race at all. Okay, any work. And the Nazi dinosaur, as as the duly elected king of the Jews, if the full evidence that she's a Nazi is 13 years ago in Edge Lord comic with Nazi dinosaurs. I judge her not guilty.
1: Well, that's the other thing, is that this furor shows over these 10-year-old drawings, it shows how much has changed in the past decade in progressive spaces. I don't think there's any way that these Nazi dinosaurs would have caused any sort of like cancellation attempt in 2010 or the same thing about the Mohammed cartoon. Obviously, there was a lot of conversation and some backlash about this, but this wasn't so taboo that it wasn't something that you would, you know, have attached to your name. It was just edgelord shit.
0: Yeah. I don't know about the – the cartoon thing was different because, like, it was considered – like, even after the um, Charlie Hebdo thing, you know, there were a lot of crazy progressives saying effectively victim blaming. So, I don't know. Maybe they're – anyway.
1: Yeah, Pen America. A bunch of, like, members of Pen America wrote a letter condemning – pen for giving an award to the like surviving staff at charlie hebdo
0: insane just insane and there's people like dave zirins on that it's just insane but anyway yes yeah, so your broader point is um this there's also the broader thing of like certain internet cultures where edgelord behavior is encouraged and meeting the real world where you're a real phd student um at the time she did the nazi thing was she just going under an online handle or her real name do you know
1: uh, it was an online handle, but it wasn't hard to connect this to her actual yeah. human persona. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. I think there's very little there. There, I feel bad that she's come in for this treatment.
1: Yeah, and of course, this is Twitter, so it feels like it's not the real world. But when this stuff becomes such a massive blow up within your field and, and the top members of the field know about this, the, the fact remains that this could actually have some impact on her career because now her name is just attached to the word eugenicist unfairly.
0: I'm like I'm like a week into successfully staying out of Twitter bullshit, but like when I see something like this, I just want to jump in to the people who are like I denounce her instantly and just be like, be just engaged, which I can't because they're crazy people. But it's it's frustrating to see. I feel bad for her.
1: Yeah, and then it also it's true that if like someone like you or I defended her publicly, it's probably going to actually hurt her in the long run.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It won't help anyway.
1: Hey, before we uh, go for the day, can we talk a little bit about that story that came out of Seattle where the reporter got the public
0: records request of your name? Yeah. I mean, this is your your buddy Jason Rance, right?
1: Yeah. I I don't know if we've actually met him. We've, I don't think we've ever met in person, but yes. Jason but you've
0: known Rance. him for a while, right?
1: Yeah. Online. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he he. so this goes back to, uh, we talked about this study before, right? Probably. There was a study in JAMA Network Open, uh, or JAMA Open Network, I always... Mix names up. Um, this gender clinic at the University of Washington published this just ridiculously broken study claiming that puberty blockers and hormones improve kids' mental health. And I did a very, very long post about how broken it was. Um, it just the study did not show – Very, very long. As Right. Direct quote, as we'll see. Um just about how broken it was. It was completely broken. It did not come close to showing these treatments helped. And in fact, the, as the researchers measured it, the kids who went on hormones and blockers, their mental health did not improve a year later. It stayed the same on everything they measured. So just this is a really important subject. And watching this journal publish this garbage study that was then enthusiastically marketed by the University of Washington was frustrating. So Jason Rance, who's a, a conservative radio host and writer, right, in Seattle? yes. He, he did a public records request and he found the communications folks at the University of Washington, uh, acknowledging, you know, one of them said that these are very concerning claims I raised, but they just said they weren't going to respond because the piece was doing well online and bringing them positive publicity. So that, that's how the shit works. You publish a completely broken paper, but it tells people what they want to hear and your university's PR apparatus, uh, celebrates the, the PR success and, um, doesn't the truth doesn't matter? The fact that you're talking about putting vulnerable kids on major medicine—we have very little data on in this context—doesn't matter. It's it's just it's it's ghoulish. It's horrible.
1: Here's a quote from uh, Jason Rance's article. This is an email that he got in this public records request. This is this was written by uh, a UW Medicine spokesperson. FYI, I read through his that his Jesse exceedingly long. Very, very long <laughs> article which claimed the research was flawed or at worst made up. But given the extremely positive pickup by mainstream media, I would agree and just let this be.
0: <laughs> I mean, look, it's not it's not their their job is to just promote whatever garbage their university puts out. Um so it's not yes. their job to like debunk, but like this is I was glad he did the record people should do more public records requests. I should learn how to do them. I don't really know how. But um I was glad he published that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of rich stuff to find in public records requests. I think primarily because university employees tend not to understand that anything they write with their university email can be uh, revealed to the public.
0: They definitely do not.
1: Yeah, it was good reporting by Jason. We'll uh, put a
0: link to that in the show notes. That we will. This has been Blocked Reported. As always, we are produced with help from Tracing Wood Thank you, Trace. I'm Jesse Single. And remember... The only way to defeat a Nazi velociraptor is through reason and debate.
1: And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, the only way to rid a conference of a Ben Shapiro outbreak is to play Cardi B's WAP over the conference speakers.